You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Andrew and I are joined today by Julie Gerberding, Executive Vice President and Chief Patient Officer at Merck, former director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention 2002 to 2009, and for the past two years, we're very proud, has been co-chair of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security, a commission that we are now extending for another two-year run. Julie, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I really look forward to uh, kind of taking a hard look at where we are and what we learned this week. This has been an extraordinary week. I mean, first of all, We're seeing these record numbers of case counts of COVID-19, 38,880 yesterday, the largest recorded level ever in the course of this pandemic. And it's been very busy on the Hill. You appeared this week uh, at two Senate hearings back to back. You must be a bit tired. On the June 23rd, the Senate Help Committee met on uh, COVID-19 lessons learned to prepare for the next pandemic. You appeared with Bill Frist, Janae Caldoun from Michigan, Mike Levitt. And then the next day you appeared at the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, the role of the strategic national stockpile in pandemic response, along with Dan Gerstein, Greg Burrell, and Andrew Phelps. On the same day that you appeared, the June 23rd was also in over on the House side, Energy and Commerce Committee oversight of the Trump administration's response to the pandemic. So there's a surge of interest on the Hill, and it allows us to begin asking questions, well, what are these, all of these deliberations tell us about where we are in the pandemic? And has it become more politicized, less? What are, what are people really talking about? So why don't, why don't we start, Julie, tell us about what your big takeaways were from these two back-to-back Senate hearings. Thank you. Um, And I agree with you that there is a surge of interest, and I'm sure some of that does have to do with the pending election coming up this fall and the incredible political scrutiny uh, that's going on. But I felt that at least the Senate hearings that I participated in were conducted with the right spirit. People were really looking for information and answers. And yes, there were a little bit of Uh, back and forth conversations that might be labeled as political. But I think for the most part, people were genuinely interested in getting information out and and really thinking about what we need to do next. So let's take the first, the Senate Help Committee um, with Senator Alexander and, and Senator Murray, who's also a member of our commission here. What were the main sentiments, the main concerns that came across from that hearing? You know, really in two frames. I mean, first is what do we need to do now? Because we're still in an environment where there's rapid transmission. This pandemic is far from over. And uh, some sentiment that perhaps it was a bit too early to be thinking about the future when we're right smack in the middle of what we're dealing with now. Um, But there was a very thoughtful discussion about how do we do better? What are the really important changes that need to occur? Probably one of the things that struck me the most remarkably was how consistent the various external advisory bodies have been on a few key points. So you have the bipartisan blue ribbon panel, you have our commission, the CSIS commission on how to strengthen America's global health security, 
Um, and then you have Senator Alexander's six-point plan. All these things come together and they keep saying the same things over and over again. But this time I feel like maybe there's traction. So what do you see as the major items that they're calling for? Yourself, Frist, and uh, Janae Khaldun and Mike Levitt. Well, one of the overarching perspectives is that we need to elevate the national strategy for health security into the national security apparatus writ large. And that means a sustained leadership environment at the level of the National Security Council. We can't have this ping-ponging back and forth from one leader to the next, or the leadership comes and the leadership goes. We need sustained driven, accountable leadership to really create a plan with the involved government parties, but also the private sector. I think the second thing is that just like we can't have a ping pong of strategy, we need to have sustained investment. And I was really intrigued by Senator Alexander's comments about the path forward for securing ongoing long-term budget outside of the budget cap process, which leads to the kind of horse trading that causes inconsistency and the appropriation that's available to invest in preparedness. And not just for the federal government, but for the state and local governments. They need long-term commitments and funding to really be able to drive this agenda. And the third thing that I was really happy to hear was the emphasis on exercising. Yes. I think, you know, we can't exercise enough and we need to have comprehensive exercise curriculums that really continuously drives us to the next level of preparedness. There was a lot of discussion around racial disparities, marginalized communities. That seemed to come up as a, a great concern. I, I think you're right about that. People are staring into that mirror and really recognizing that we have once again demonstrated that because we haven't created uh, any measurable progress in addressing the social determinants of health, whatever the crisis is that emerges, it will disproportionately affect the most vulnerable people in our society. And that's true in the United States as, as it is true everywhere else in the world. Yeah. You put up special emphasis on talking about the development of vaccines and about public-private uh, interface. Say a bit about what your message was there in, with respect to the vaccine development. Yeah, I mean, I have a couple of really important points that, that I think are very critical for the Congress and others to understand. One is that while we're talking about the speed of vaccine development, there is a high bar for efficacy. And being the first vaccine isn't necessarily going to create the best vaccine. But even more important than that is the higher bar for safety. And we must start building trust and confidence in this vaccine program now because we already have learned that some 25% of Americans say they would not take a COVID vaccine. So we really need to create a mechanism where we're sharing what we're doing, why we're doing it, what those steps are, what we're learning about safety and adverse events, and being as transparent as we possibly can as we go forward. That also means engaging specifically the vulnerable communities and the people who are most likely to be skeptical of the vaccine safety. So we need to understand and listen and support their interests and their concerns as we go forward. We can't do this from behind the factory walls. We have to get out there and really work with people and listen and understand. I'd like to invite my partner in this enterprise, Andrew Schwartz, to jump in. Thank you, Steve. And welcome, Dr. Gerberding. You know, 
I just spent the last few days outside of Cleveland, Ohio with my family and I drove there and it was interesting because this is an area of the country where it's very divided. And I noticed that when I walked into the CVS, half the people were wearing masks. I was one of them. Half the people weren't. And the people who weren't wearing masks were glaring at those of us who were wearing masks. And public health has now become politicized in this country. How are we going to get beyond this virus if people are politicizing simple acts like social distancing and wearing masks? Well, I'm not sure we are going to get beyond that politicalization, sadly. But I do think that the credibility of the communicators really matters. And I'm relieved to see the CDC recommending masks because that does have a persuasive impact on some people. Um, I think the science is going to be slow to come. So making these science-based recommendations are going to be a thing of the future. But right now there's a second column of evidence that I have a lot of faith in, and that's the, the column called common sense. And to me, it makes perfect sense that the fewer people you have contact with and the more barriers you put between yourself and them and the cleaner you keep your hands, the less likely you are to acquire the virus and the less likely you are to transmit it to someone else. So we really need to emphasize just the practicality of this. It's not about politics. It's about a pandemic. Well, Chris Murray of the University of Washington came out with his new model yesterday, and he said that we're on track to lose 180,000 lives by October 1st, which is an astonishing number. What more does science need than to say we need to social distance? The other thing Murray said was that if we had really stuck to social distancing, if we had implemented it earlier, we'd be in a much better position now than we are. I think it's important to just go to what we do know. And we know this is an incredibly transmissible virus even when you don't know you have it. And we know that transmission is ongoing and is going to continue until such time that we either have sufficient population immunity or we have a vaccine. Those are the facts. And so in that context, we also know that social distancing is capable of slowing transmission. We've all watched it happen. And what we're really struggling with now is, is there a way to avoid the incredible harm that that degree of social distancing creates for businesses and families and individuals who don't have a livelihood? How much openness can we tolerate and and how do we calibrate successfully in that middle zone? So a lot of experiments are going on all over our country right now. And we're observing that if you go too far too fast, you will pay the price and we will see more transmission. And I think as that lesson sinks in, it will have to result in some significant pullback of the wide openness that many have advocated. We've also seen this happen in Beijing, where there's been a new round of transmission, and even South Korea, which we have been holding up as an exemplar of containment, is now experiencing either an increase in their first wave or a second wave of transmission. So when we relax our social distancing, we're going to see more transmission. It's inevitable. What do you think it takes for It's a sink in, though, with Americans and with public health officials. Public health officials have been absent 
from television for the last, you know, 62 days, it was reported. Well, I'm grateful for Dr. Fauci because I believe that he is credible and that people do pay attention to what he's saying. So he's a little bit of the lone public health spokesperson right now, but we are so fortunate to have his point of view expressed through all media channels that I've been able to observe. So he is extremely important and very helpful. And I think we just need more solidarity with public health point of view. Um, We've seen jurisdictions where public health officials have resigned because they can't support the political decisions that are being made. Uh, And they're under attack. They are under attack. But I do think also that we have to understand what the pressure is. It isn't just, I want to pretend like there's not a pandemic because I want to be elected. The pressure really is that people are suffering. Families can't feed themselves. They can't get health care. They can't survive in this environment. So we have to also concentrate on what more can we do to help with the economic hardship that this is truly creating for people. I'm struck by the fact that this week is, as I said at the outset, 38,000 cases yesterday. There's been a 70% rise in cases in the last six days, and it's in over 20 states and mostly in the West and the South. These are battleground states politically. I mean, Florida, Oklahoma, Texas, Arizona, and North Carolina, these are the places which are seeing rip-roaring outbreaks right now. Yet I don't see much action either within the administration or in Congress to say, wait a second, we are now in a a rebound that is huge. And what are we going to do about it? It's really been quite interesting. Across these very important hearings, uh, there was some dismay, but it really wasn't about, wait a second, we're back at a the moment that is equal to where we were in in, in middle of April in terms of the levels of crisis. Uh, I, I think there's also an element of wishful thinking because this is not a uniform uh, rebound, as you say. You know, it's regional and local. And so there are settings where this is exploding, not surprisingly. And then there are places where they've been able to hold the line. And so that creates even more complexity and understanding, you know, what what is going on and why the reaction to it isn't more vociferous across the whole nation. Yeah. Um, You mentioned earlier about public confidence in the vaccine. We're going certainly the anti-vaccine movement is going strong and getting stronger in this period as we march towards hopefully having soon vaccine or vaccines that we can use. There's fear that the administration may succumb to political, its own political calculations and prematurely push something towards emergency use authorization. How do we protect ourselves against the decisions around vaccine being politicized in that way, which would undermine public confidence? Well, I think the first line of defense truly is responsible biopharmaceutical clinical development. And I feel very confident that the colleagues I've spoken to in the industry, some are competitors, some are uh, are not, but people who are in this space trying to do the right thing. And I think no one is fooled uh, that you know, we cannot take safety shortcuts. No one wants to be accountable for making a mistake that results in harm to people who are otherwise healthy. 
So while we talk about how we're speeding vaccine development, that speed is coming by doing certain things in parallel, like harmonizing protocols or deciding together which are the leading candidates that should get the scaled investment or investing at risk at manufacturing, which Merck is certainly doing, gearing up for hundreds of millions of doses. But I, I think what we are not compromising is the safety assessment. And that has to be the case. And even if we're fortunate enough to have an early lead vaccine become available as an emergency use authorization, um, that vaccine is still going to have to be carefully monitored as it goes into wider circulation beyond the first high need uh, recipients, as we have done with other vaccines like the Ebola vaccine or Bebo, for example. But I think the secret is normally we just do that. We don't talk too much about it. Now we really have to be transparent and spell it out. And what I recommended um, to the Senate was that they ask, formally ask the National Academy of Medicine to right. take on the responsibility for the safety monitoring, as the Academy has done in many other vaccine issues over time, including the smallpox vaccination program back in 2003 and four. So I, I think we have mechanisms to actualize this. And that is a credible, trusted body of scientists with no political axe to grind. And that's why they exist, to serve that need for Congress. So hopefully we can get some help with this. Good. Now, on the, the Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Senate Committee meeting, which was focused on the strategic national stockpile, Senator Ron Johnson chairs, Senator Gary Peters, ranking minority from Michigan. I was struck at that hearing by how there seemed to be a call for a fundamental rethink of, of the entire enterprise of the strategic national stockpile, uh, redrafting its mission, rethinking where it should be positioned within our government. What are the lines of authority? How do we think of where it fits within the broader government? Tell us a little bit about what you heard and what you were trying to advance at that hearing. Well, broadly speaking, I would say that the senators were confused about the intent of the strategic national stockpile. They're well aware from their constituents that the stockpile failed to meet the frontline healthcare worker needs. And so they're obviously interested and want answers to that. But as they dig into the history of the stockpile, I think they're discovering how it has as I said, ping pong back and forth between CDC, DHS, HHS, CDC, et cetera, how leadership has evolved over time and how the strategic intent has not been clarified or consistent over long arcs of time. In addition, the stockpile is funded to a budget mark, but that budget mark is not linked to a strategic intent. And so what happens is the tail wags the dog. The stockpile may want to provide enough personal protective equipment to protect every frontline healthcare worker in a pandemic, but they also have to make sure we have an anthrax vaccine and that we have countermeasures for radiation and other biologic hazards. And when the budget is fixed, they make choices. And in this case, they made a choice to do a, a little bit of everything, but they were not able to go deep in terms of supporting the PPE requirements or the ventilator requirements for a national pandemic. I think it is very doable. It's not easy, but it's doable to improve the stockpile, but it's going to take an investment and a different kind of leadership and strategic intent. Andrew? Julie, what do you think that CDC and other health agencies in the government really need to do in the very immediate sense right now? 
There are some things we need to know right now um, that will really make a difference in terms of how we manage just in the next few months with school season starting soon. We need to know daycare, schools, and colleges, what's going on there with this virus. Is it being transmitted? And do those individuals who are in those environments pose a risk to their households, their families, or others that they come in contact with who are more vulnerable or not? Because if we learn that kids in daycare really don't transmit this virus very readily, we already know they rarely get sick, that would be important because that could create some relief. If on the other hand, they are efficient transmitters but just don't happen to be ill, but do potentially transmit to their parents or their grandparents, that's a whole different situation that we have to contend with. So I think that's critical. The second thing we need to do right now is improve how we talk about and implement testing. There are really only a short list of testing imperatives, despite all the hype about how many people we're testing and why. We need to test people who are symptomatic. We need to test their contacts so we can find out if anyone is asymptomatically infected and we need to quarantine and isolate accordingly. We need to test the hot spots where we know transmission is now occurring. Uh, in nursing homes, et cetera. And then we need to test places that are likely to be hotspots or could be hotspots based on what we already know. So maybe there's a hotspot in a meatpacking plant in South Dakota, but maybe there are other meatpacking plants that so far have been fortunate enough not to showcases, but we need to go in there and preemptively at least do surveillance testing so that we can identify early if a hotspot is occurring. And then finally, the last category is the category I just mentioned, which is surveillance to understand the disease transmission in environments where we simply don't really know what the hazard is and it has profound policy implications. All the other testing of, you know, completely well people who aren't in a risk group and who haven't been any place that's particularly hazardous. I think, you know, nice to be tested if you can find a test that's currently reliable enough to be meaningful. But for the most part, those people are clogging up the test environment and making it more difficult for the priority tests to get done. How is that going to happen, though, And when we have an administration that has no desire to really put that level of priority on testing? Unexpanded, expanded yeah, testing. you know, I, I've I've heard that coming from some high-ranking officials in our administration, but I would say that the CDC is not saying that, and clearly, what's going on at the state level is increased testing. The behavior and the implementation is still very much oriented toward expanding testing, and I think increasingly, thankfully, we're beginning to see that. They're coming up with innovative ways to test people in vulnerable populations in inner cities or in rural areas that don't have easy access to conventional healthcare environments. So we need to learn more about those populations because they are vulnerable to the more serious side effects. So I'm glad to see that that's beginning to emerge. We're talking a lot about when we're going to get our sports teams back and our sports games back. And of course, that's really important. But are we talking enough about what it's going to be like in the fall for our kids to go back to school? Uh, I think we are talking a lot about that. And, you know, even at a college level, it's kind of all over the map, isn't it? There, there's some campuses that have just said we'll be distance learning only. And others have said, well, we, we've got it covered. We're going to implement some really creative mechanisms of social distancing. But kids are coming back, probably won't have big crowds and the kind of social activities that that you're used to, but we will have an on-campus experience. 
that's all very experimental. And I think we're going to learn a lot as we conduct all of these experiments across various environments. It's not easy. You know, one of the things I would just say, Andrew, is that acknowledging that uncertainty is really important because if we create false confidence, that's worse. I think saying, here's what we know, here's what we don't know. This is what we're doing. This is how we're going to keep you up to date. This is how we're going to track what's happening. And we will adjust accordingly. You know, that's what worries me because, you know, even on a personal level, in my case, my oldest son not only goes to college, but he plays football in college. And so my father said to me last night, well, how do you feel about him actually playing this season if they have a season? And I have very mixed feelings about it. Now, the university he goes to has a great hospital and all that, but it's hard to reconcile these issues. It is hard. And kids don't understand, you know. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Exactly. Julie, you've been so generous to CSIS the last two years in co-chairing the commission. Were there ideas that came out of your hearing appearances this week at the two Senate hearings around things that we need to be taking up in, the, in this next period of the commission's work? Well, you know, I think we're very forward-leaning in November when we issued our, our report. And I think the first thing we need to do is to go back and look at what we recommended and see how it holds up. And I, my own reaction is it's holding up pretty well that we we were on definitely the right track of what needs to happen to improve our preparedness. But I think there could be a role for the commission to really help in the assessment of the doctrine of preparedness and the strategic assets like the strategic national stockpile. Somebody with a broad-based expertise in biodefense and security needs to really look at that broadly with an open mind and really understand how that asset can be improved. And I think the temptation is in the part of some people to think that the the stockpile problem is a supply chain problem. Well, there is a supply chain problem and that it has to be part of the conversation, but it's much broader than that. It's a capability issue and a doctrine issue and a budget issue. So I think it needs a comprehensive look. And the commission has an amazing crowd of wise people, including um, our two senators, Senator Murray and Senator Young, as well as our four representatives, Representative Brooks, Eshu, Barra, and Cole. Uh, These are wise experts um, who understand how to translate what we learn into something that could be relevant to a legislative process. I certainly came away listening to Senators Johnson and Peters uh, with a very strong impression that they're looking for ideas. They're looking for help on thinking this through and that the, the door is open and they are trying to do a wholesale rethink uh, at this moment and not quite clear where to move. In your heart of hearts, do you believe that the stockpile needs to be relocated at CDC? You know, if it were, if I were queen of the world, I would have left it there in the first place. Um, and I say that because I don't see it just as a warehouse full of stuff. I see it as a capability. And the front line of that capability is the local health department in collaboration with the local healthcare environment. Right. And CDC is the conduit of training and support and capability development at that front line. So to me, that's where the action is. And it makes sense that CDC continue to have that accountability. Now, the other piece of the stockpile is the introduction of new innovative 
countermeasures, and that involves a whole set of functions related to scoping, prioritizing, contracting, and so on and so forth. And those activities are perhaps best conducted at ASPR, where BARDA has the technical expertise. So not every function of the stockpile needs to be conducted by CDC, but I think the leadership and accountability for the overall capability is a public health function. Thank you. Now, we normally close these podcasts by asking our guest to share what gives you the greatest hope at this moment, though, of crisis. It's hard to feel hopeful right now. I read a beautiful quote by Arundhati Roy that I can't recite from memory, but the gist of the statement was that this plague is like a portal. And when we walk through it, we can choose our future. We can choose to walk through and create a better world with more social justice and, and in, in our view, more preparedness, or we can try to go back to the way things were. And I'm hoping that when we walk through this plague, that we will come out on the other side with a much greater respect and appreciation for the importance of our health security on a global basis awareness that we're all in a very connected world and no one is safe until everyone is safe, but also that we will recognize the incredible inequities that have been the hallmark of this and every other serious health issue, and finally really tackle them in the context of the overall social justice crisis that we're facing around the world, really. Thank you so much for that eloquent close, and thanks so much for your leadership and your generosity to CSIS. Thank you. I appreciate everything you're doing, and it's wonderful to have a place where we can bring our thoughts and explore ideas and critique what's going on, but also do our best to be helpful. So thank you, Steve. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for being with us. 